0: Thank you, Graeme, and uh, and thank you everyone who's come on such a lovely day today, I really appreciate that because you could be out sunbathing, you could be out enjoying the sun, which is also good for our mental health, but thank you when we talk when i talked with graham initially about doing doing this day i was very excited to get on board with it for reasons i'll explain in a minute but what we hadn't realized when we set the date was that it is mental health awareness week we're actually bang in the middle of it so it feels as if you know this is absolutely pertinent and relevant that we do it right now as graham said we're running it to raise awareness of mental health issues particularly of the reception of mental health issues within within the church, really to look at that closely to see where we could be doing it better and what some of the hindrances are to people who sit in our churches who have mental health issues. It's It's also, I'm hoping to be, not just giving an awareness of mental health issues, but really the research and the background to mental health issues common mental health issues like anxiety, depression, OCD, panic disorders, this sort of thing. But also some of the ways that we can preventatively steward our mental health, just as we're encouraged to steward our, our physical health. You all know there's plenty emphasis for all of us, you know, join a gym, get running, couch to 5K. But it's only in recent years that there's been an emphasis on what we can do to support our mental health preventatively before things go south before things become difficult for us um, so the other thing is that we, we want in exploring it today to see how we can make the church a safe place for people with mental health issues so um, a little bit of housekeeping we're going to have three sessions today <clears throat> I have no idea of the time how that will pan out but believe me you, you, you will be finished at the time that we've said and there will be a lunch break and there will be a coffee break um, if you, I've said this is a teaching session, we're not going to be sharing personal stories, I won't be expecting you to share personal stories, um, but I, do, I am aware that um, triggers can come along unexpectedly, things that we find difficult, even in an educational session. So if you feel that and you feel a bit triggered, feel a bit uncomfortable, emotional, please do feel free to step outside. And, and come back when you're ready. Um, what else do I want to say about that? Oh yes, um, if you do have any questions, if you could let the sessions run and then we are going to have a panel of Q&A at the end with myself and Ruth and Graham. Um, so please keep making note of those questions either mentally or write them down and we'll have a Q&A session um, at the end. Because quite often we find that when we've got a question, It's answered further down the line so it's useful to have that at the end okay bit of an introduction to me Graham said something about me but my my background has been very very varied I was one of those people while I was at school had a clue what I wanted to do Um, I loved learning um, but I really didn't know what I wanted to do Um, I became a Christian at the age of 17 just before I went to university um, and my work thereafter was, I worked in London for two missionary organisations, doing a fair bit of teaching and what they call deputation, and, uh, and then um, got married, my husband, Eddie, and um, we set up a church, a small house church in Wolverhampton, and we were working there for maybe about 10 years, Graham grew up in that, and, uh, and then I went into teaching. And while I was in teaching, I drifted more and more to look at the issues that children had with their learning because of mental health problems. Because when I was a child, I had difficulties with my learning because of anxiety. And actually, at that stage, I, as an eight-year-old, was referred to what would have been seen as CAMS nowadays, or Child and Family Service, but in those days was known as the Child Guidance Clinic. And I was hugely helped By that, and that always stayed with me. So when I was teaching myself, and I saw children struggling with their learning, my immediate thought wasn't they're stupid and what's wrong with them. It was, what's happened to them? What's going on for them here? So I jumped from teaching, and I trained, as Graham said, as a psychodynamic therapist, and it absolutely took over my life. I I did the uh, the qualification. Period, which is the postgraduate diploma and then went on and did a a master's and did research and then worked in um, voluntary sector further education bit privately and then latterly in a girls grammar school so I am retired now um, but I look back on my life and I'm saying this to encourage you all I look back on my life and I can see all the bumps all the things that were difficult all the things that were hard God uses and he uses it to help others. He uses it for his glory. Yeah. So when we think about our weaknesses, I'll come back to this later, God can use them. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to start after that preamble. Right, we're starting with a World Health Organization definition of what is mental health. So I'm going to read this. Mental health is more than just the absence of mental disorder. It is a state of physical, social, mental and psychological well-being. And it goes on. In which an individual realises his or her own abilities, can cope with the normal stresses of life, can work productively, interact well with others, make a contribution to his or her own community and enjoy life. So I want us to notice that this description of good mental health includes the physical, the mental, the social and the psychological. They are all connected. So if we have good mental health, very often it will reflect in our physical, our social and our psychological well being. And reversely, if our mental health is wobbly or is compromised in some way, <coughs> it will affect us physically it will affect us socially it's hard to interact with other people when you're struggling with depression and anxiety and it will affect us mentally in our thinking our emotions and psychologically so i want us to realize that because it is a holistic description of mental health mental health is not something that exists solely in our minds yeah it affects our minds, our feelings, our bodies, our interactions with others, our ability to work. So it's so, <coughs> beg your pardon, it's so important that we address mental health because it doesn't stay in the mind. It affects how we, how we are in the world. So, going on, how might we, or someone, or how might, um, how might we know that we, or someone we know, is struggling with their mental health. Okay. We might think we know, so I'm just going to unpick some of the signs of vulnerable mental health. So low mood, withdrawing, it's really hard to be around people when you're feeling meh or worse. Poor concentration, talked a bit about that in children's ability to learn. Children cannot learn if they're anxious. Because that part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, that helps you to learn, shuts down. Because you don't need to think when you're running from something, do you? It's the fight and flight uh, hormones that come into play. You don't need your brain, you need your muscles to run. So the brain shuts down. So when we're under threat, we cannot learn. So poor concentration. Those of you who are teachers probably aware of that, but it's good to be aware of it. <clears throat> we might sleep more or less. Lack of energy, worrying more, loss of appetite, irritability, yeah, feeling overwhelmed, and loss of interest in previously enjoyed activities. It can also be the worrying more leading to panic attacks. And please note, when, when someone is having a panic attack, um, You can't talk them out of it you can't rationalize them out of it you can't actually won't have any effect telling them that they're actually safe because the 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 cognitive part of the brain is shut down at that point they need to know they're safe through grounding through feeling that they're in the in the here and now Um, self-harm and sadly suicidal thinking our mental health whether it's good or poor Please remember is on a continuum it isn't fixed it varies and it can be dependent on so many different things it can be dependent on our physical health on life events that are happening to us on actually the developmental stage where we where we are in life I'll say a bit more about that later and hormones please remember any one of us can suffer from anxiety depression stress overwhelm or panic disorder in our lives. It is not a sign of weakness. No one is exempt and it has nothing to do with weakness. It doesn't matter what your age, it doesn't matter what your social economic background is, what your race is. We We can all become vulnerable and we may all need support and help at times just as we do with our physical health which we pay far more attention to I think than our mental health research shows that there are particular life stages that need extra vigilance and care concerning mental health i wonder if anybody knows what those stages life stages might be anybody want to venture something i'll tell you adolescence and later life in particular these are vulnerable I'll talk more about early childhood later. Okay, Why might that be? We don't really think, you know, that later life, well, we're established, you know, we've gone through life, we can cope with things. Adolescence, well, it's an exciting time, you know, what have you got to be worried about? <laughs> it's particularly to do with identity loss and transitions. As an adolescent, you are struggling to find your identity you're working out who you are you're trying on different types you're working it out loss because you're leaving behind that safe anchorage of childhood and you're having to fend for yourself particularly if you're off to university you're off into a new job you know you may think you have the skills to deal with that but do you until you're actually there and it's and transitions And similarly, for later life, for the 50s, 60s, 70s, it's a very similar thing. It's identity and loss. You're actually losing that identity that you had in work. You're losing that identity that you had as a nurturing parent when your children fly the nest. It's a transition. Often you're losing your parents at that stage. It it can be a, a difficult time to transition. The other thing that's worth saying, particularly about teenagers, is that teenage brains are not mini-adult brains. They actually don't develop the ability to... Well, the executive brain capacities, the ability to problem-solve, the ability to see from a, a broader perspective. The brain doesn't actually finally mature until, amazingly, we're in our mid-twenties, around about 24. So that's worth remembering. You're, when you're talking to a teenager, you're not talking to a mini adult. Not not in terms of um, brain function. It's a harsh thing to say, isn't it? It's actually, research shows that it's true. Okay, so <clears throat> let's carry on. <laughs> it might explains a lot about teenagers. Actually, I think you. Back to my own teenagehood. Um, mind-body connection. This is an interesting one. Western philosophical thinking follows Greek philosophy, whereby the body is seen as simply the casing of the soul. But Hebrew thought, much more holistic, the body and the soul are one. So if seeing the body as quite separate from the soul and the emotional life has in the past led to medical science dismissing any physical symptoms without a physical cause, a psychosomatic, it's all in the mind and labelling patients as neurotic. I don't know if you've experienced this, it's quite harsh judgement. Thankfully, recent advances in neuroscience from about the 90s onwards, particularly detailed MRI scans of the brain, show clearly how emotional stress physically affects and can change our brains. As I've said, the executive functions shut down. Adrenaline and cortisol, which are the stress hormones, flood our neural systems and really do make it impossible to concentrate, make decisions or maintain a good appetite. Instead, when these fight or flight hormones are released, when we feel trapped or threatened, they course through our bodies, keeping them on high alert and causing the physical symptoms of panic attacks, high blood pressure, headaches, stomach aches, various other things. If you are into knowing about that in more detail, this is a wonderful book, though very, very detailed. It's called The Body Keeps the Score. Um, It's by Bessel van der Kolk, who is an expert in trauma research and goes into really how the brain and the mind and the emotions are intimately connected. So if you want to know more on a much deeper level, there's a lot in there. Okay. I'll lay it out afterwards. Okay, let's carry on. So, generally, we're pretty good at managing our emotions. Life isn't always a bed of roses, and it's natural to feel sad sometimes, or angry, or lonely, or upset, even if you're a Christian. (laughs) Normal, just as it is to feel happy and excited. Emotions are just that, emotions. And we shouldn't pathologise normal sadness or anxiety. You know, if you lose a pet or you face an important exam, it's okay to feel sad, anxious, tearful, upset. It's fine. It merits it. But we're very good at ignoring our negative feelings, and we'll look at why in a minute. But when our bodies begin to be affected, it is time for us to listen. It's a bit like an alarm going off when the house is on fire. So, let's see. Why don't we listen to our feelings? You may have some thoughts about that before we put on. Okay. Why we don't listen. Some ideas here. Okay, I don't want to listen to my negative feelings because if I start listening and I admit they're there, they might overwhelm me. And then I might not be able to manage. Okay. Okay. Negative feelings, hmm, I'm feeling angry, I'm feeling upset, I'm feeling rejected, mm, those feelings aren't acceptable, so I won't listen to them. I just need to power through. We don't listen because if we listen, then we're acknowledging they're there, and then we might talk about them, and then my friends won't respect me, and if I acknowledge I'm having mental health issues, and my boss hears about it, I might <coughs> lose my job. And actually, sometimes that has happened. So, there are other reasons that we may not listen to our negative feelings. Sometimes past experience. If we've shared that we're having a struggle with anxiety or depression, we might experience that the person we're talking to hasn't been that receptive. They've maybe replied, oh yeah, I felt like that once, and then gone on to their own stories. Or they might, or they might be just, well, you know, just pray about it, you'll be fine. If people don't receive it in the right way, we shut down and then it's hard for us to actually acknowledge that we're having those feelings. There's, a current, there's been a current emphasis really since I think when I started my teacher's training it was about mid-90s when there was started to be an emphasis on emotional intelligence after Daniel Goleman's book Emotional Intelligence. Which is great, and I think in most primary schools now, children are actually taught to recognise their feelings and what to do about it, and they exercise mindfulness. And that's absolutely brilliant. Historically, the older ones amongst us may have grown up with the cultural family mantra that it's not done to talk about your feelings, that you don't air your dirty washing in public, that you just get on with it. And I think... For for me, I'm a baby boomer. I grew up with parents who'd gone through the Second World War. They grew up with parents who'd gone through the First World War. So we laugh about the, you know, keep calm and carry on. But actually, that really was the mantra for them. It's like, never mind how you're feeling. We have to get on, yeah? And that transmitted to a whole generation, growing up baby boomers, who really weren't... um, encouraged, uh, they didn't have it mirrored to them, how to deal with feelings. Particularly if you were male, then big boys don't cry. What do you do when you're upset if you're a male? And you hear, "That's, that's the background. And if you were female, well, anger was completely unacceptable. You had to be nice. And if nobody in the family ever talked about how they really felt, and particularly if managing difficult feelings was never demonstrated well in the family and people instead just exploded, rowed or cried but nobody talked about it, then permission is never given in that family to acknowledge or explore those feelings safely. Most times what happens is that children growing up with that grow up not really knowing what their feelings are. And we have a word for this when we don't know what our feelings are, and we don't have words for them, it's called alexithymia. And if you don't know what your feelings are, how do you process them? How do you deal with them? Growing up like that, you become particularly frightened of the bigger feelings because what you've had mirrored is, we don't talk about those, so they're dangerous. So these are some reasons that we might not acknowledge our own feelings of fear. What we do instead is we deny, we suppress and we anaesthetise them. So what does that mean if we deny them? This is a bit complex but it's to do with being gaslit and we're not saying that this happens deliberately but you may have been told, what have you got to be depressed about? innocent enough comment, you'll probably hear it in the family like what, what have you got to be sad about? What have you got to be depressed about? Oh okay, so there's no rationale for me feeling sad or depressed. I can't be depressed. So I'm not depressed. So you deny it. We may suppress it because no one hears. no one listens. So we just put it, put it down, put it in the cellar, close the door, pretend it's not there. Or we anaesthetise negative feelings, what does that mean, what does that look like? What that looks like is that we bury ourselves in work, we bury ourselves in alcohol, we bury ourselves maybe in drugs or in TV, all sorts of things, just so that we don't feel. It's like pulling the duvet over your head when the fire alarm is going off. Your bad feelings and the way your body is reacting are telling you that something needs to change. It's like an alarm going off. If we can see it that way, it's maybe less frightening. It's a bit like C.S. Lewis said, pain is God's megaphone, and I love that. If we could see pain as my body, God, is trying to tell me something. Something actually here needs to change. So, suppressing or denying those feelings does not make them go away. Would we agree? Doesn't make them go away. Yeah? It's a little bit, this is an awful analogy, but it's the best way I can see it. It's a bit like putting upset and, um, yeah, upset children in the cellar and locking the door. What are they going to do? Bang and clamour and shout and scream and cry to be let out. And that's what our negative feelings do if we try to deny or suppress them and they begin to express themselves in our bodies in our relationships and in our reactions to things so I should have said to you this session it gets better the second (coughs) session is going to be a bit more fun but this I have entitled the grim session (laughs) don't worry it gets better okay so how prevalent is mental distress these statistics came from the House of Commons Library research briefings, the mental health statistics, uh, from last year, so they're pretty current, right at the end of last year. So an estimated one in six adults have experienced a common mental disorder in the last week. One in six. So if we think about that, looking at how many of us are in the room, it's quite concerning, isn't it? Um, mental health, mental, oh, I'll tell you in a bit what mental health sorry, common mental disorders include. Around one in six children, six to 16, had at least one probable mental health problem in 2021, up from one one in nine in 2017. Notice how the statistics have worsened for children since 2017, uh, most likely as a result of COVID and lockdown. So common mental disorders, (CMDs) include types of depression, anxiety, panic disorders, phobias, and OCD. Women are more affected across every age category, but the difference is most pronounced among women aged 16 to 24. Common mental disorders have increased by a third since 1993. I wonder if anybody's got any thoughts on why that might be. I certainly have. What would? What do you think? Media. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. It correlates with the rise of social media. That's so interesting. So the most common um, common mental disorders are generalized anxiety disorder, depression, phobias, OCD, and panic disorder self-harm, including eating disorders and suicidal thinking, has increased year on year in the population, most commonly amongst women in the 16 to 24 year bracket. And that is absolutely borne out by my own experience in counselling. Are the stats different in the church or faith community? Now that's an interesting one there was some research done on that from the impact of spirituality upon mental health 2006 the Mental Health Foundation it says evidence all point to a positive though often modest relationship between spirituality and mental health in a number of common mental health problems for example depression and anxiety but it also states however Not all the research was positive, but depended on the felt support of the church community. And more on the way that the church can help or hinder in the fun session three after lunch. Okay, how did we get there? Ooh, right. How did we get there? This is looking historically. The roots of mental health vulnerability. (coughs) Excuse me some water. So, historically, an early understanding of mental health problems focused on the cause being spirit or demon possession. The earliest evidence of a different approach was the Greek philosopher Hippocrates, and you'll know Hippocrates from the Hippocratic Oath, uh, which all um, medical professionals, doctors, Um, take uh, which is first do no harm so Hippocrates put forward the idea that mental disorders were due to an imbalance in bodily humours or fluids you'll have heard melancholic, sanguine choleric, phlegmatic he did not believe mental illness was shameful or that mentally ill people should be blamed for their behaviour this is going back to Greek times folks following him the Greek physician Galen also suggested that psychological stress could be a potential cause wow that far back what insight so nature and nurture currently the debate continues as to whether mental health issues are caused by nature in other words they're in our dna our genetic makeup Or nurture our early environments learned behavior etc or whether they're a combination of both and I'm afraid the jury is out on that one research suggests that schizophrenia and bipolar disorders seem to be most closely linked to a genetic cause but the specific genes are hard to identify and it seems to be a mixture of genetic and non genetic factors we know that depression and anxiety can run in families but it can be hard to prove that that's a genetic link, because learned behaviour can also be a factor. Oh, I see how mum reacts, so we learn to be anxious, we learn to be depressed. Finally, vulnerable mental health can be chemical, biological or medical. The postnatal depression and psychosis, as well as PNS, is triggered by hormone imbalances. Thyroid issues can cause anxiety and depression, as can B12 deficiency and lots of other biological health issues. And quite apart from that, suffering with pain and ongoing health problems of any kind is going to take a toll on our mental health as well as our physical health. Not just for the sufferers, but for their families and those around them too. We do know that certain environmental factors, particularly in childhood, and predispose people to poor mental health outcomes so there is a groundbreaking US study in the mid 90s identified certain critical childhood life events that make us more likely to become vulnerable to mental health issues and physical problems later in life and these are known as the aces anybody heard of the aces Stick your hand up if you have something. Yeah. Okay. All right. The adverse childhood experiences. Okay. So we're going to we're going to look at these. I do apologise, folks, that this session is so grim. But these are the base facts, and we've got to start with these before we move on to all the biblical stuff, the encouraging, the self help stuff. So let's look at the aces. Okay. This comes from um, Dr. Bruce Perry, who's an expert on trauma as well as Bessel van der Kolk, the impact of stress on the body. So these are the aces. Physical abuse or neglect, sexual abuse, emotional or verbal abuse, mental illness in the family, divorce, separation, substance abuse, domestic violence in the family, having a family member in prison. And it's, um, I it? it correlates the, um, the vulnerability to mental stress and later on to physical issues in life, correlates to how many of these ACEs a child may have been exposed to in early life. The more ACEs there are, the more likely that someone is going to have vulnerability to mental health disorders. They create vulnerability because they create levels of often unmanageable toxic stress that affect how the child and the adult he or she becomes see themselves. It affects how they see themselves. It affects how they see themselves, the world and others in it. Basically, if they've experienced these or any number of these, they are liable to see themselves as helpless, the world as dangerous and others in it not to be trusted. This significantly increases the risk of physical, emotional, and social problems later in life. So we might think, so why have I got problems? Or why has so-and-so got problems with anxiety, depression, or panic? I didn't have that kind of upbringing. Well, there are other factors, obviously, as we've already seen involved in mental health vulnerability. And these are the effects of trauma, attachment styles, and personality. So let's unpack them briefly. Okay, anybody heard of Big T and Little T? Yes. Good. (laughs) T stands for trauma. And again, this is this is research that came out of the the '90s, I believe. What happened in the '90s? So, Big T trauma is what we all think about when we hear, hear the word trauma. It's a big <coughs> life-threatening event. war, Being exposed to war, being exposed to natural disaster, uh, like the um, Boxing Day tsunami, or um, having been in a war zone, war veterans. It's, uh, or, or it can be um, violent crime, death of a parent. Um, it's the kind of event that, we ex- that often leads to PTSD, to post-traumatic stress disorder. And we wouldn't be surprised to find someone who'd been exposed to this suffering from PTSD. So we recognise its validity in causing a major mental crisis in someone who's been exposed to this. Okay? We wouldn't be surprised, would we? Okay. Little Ts are a little different. Little Ts can include the impact of a relationship breakup, the loss of a pet, ongoing bullying, sometimes invasive surgery. And we tend to ignore the impact of little teas in our life. We rationalise them as being part of life. We might be encouraged to see them as insignificant compared to others' troubles, even though we might feel deep distress. We have all heard it, hmm, never mind, plenty more fish in the sea, get over it it was only a pet (laughs) but if little T's are ongoing or there's more than one at a time or if these little T traumas happen during significant periods of brain development early childhood adolescence evidence shows that they can cause more emotional harm than a single big T event, for which there is support isn't there one of the I think it um, I'm not sure where it came from. Maybe one of the blogs I read, but but there's a, there was a comment that the single deep knife wound can kill you, but also 15 smaller lacerations with a knife can kill you. You can bleed to death from either. The analogy being the big T and the little T. Lots of little Ts can damage you just as much. So I want us to have a takeaway from this, okay? Not real takeaway. Take away what I'm saying here. <laughs> Don't minimise the impact of little t's in ourselves or others. Don't take on board. Get on with it. Don't be silly. Recognise your true feelings. Take time to respond to yourself compassionately and patiently to process those feelings, either by yourself or with someone who you can trust who will listen, whether that's a friend or a therapist. Because if we ignore the impact of little t events, it can lead to unhealthy coping behaviours like bottling up our feelings or using anaesthetising activities to stifle our pain and it can lead to cumulative damage over time. Okay, I just want to say a little bit about attachment styles and it'd be useful to know who's familiar with attachment theory and attachment styles yeah quite a lot good good um, attachment styles um, this is a, a theory um, propagated uh, largely accepted by John Bowlby who was um, a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst um, in the latter part of the last century same strange same latter Part of the last century. Yeah, however. Um, attach- attachment styles um, are to do with the way that we relate as young children to a primary caregiver. Young children, as we know, I've got a baby grandson, are completely dependent on their caregivers, whether uh, that's a, a parent or grandparents, any caregiver but there needs to have at least one primary caregiver who is consistently responsive and sensitive to their needs. That's usually the mother. She doesn't have to be perfect, but she, can, but she has to be a good enough mother. That comes from another psychoanalyst, Donald Winnicott. And this enables the child to feel secure because the caregiver functions as what was known as a secure base from which the child can explore, play, but always know that mother is there to go back to. If I'm upset, if I need comfort, if I'm a bit scared, she's always there, she's there for me. And this enables them to leave her, to go and play and explore their environment, to be confident and secure. However, if a primary caregiver is inconsistent or preoccupied, the child becomes insecurely attached and can then become anxious, leading to anxiety issues then and in later life, particularly in relationships because the expectation is there that their needs won't be met, that others will not be there for them and they will have difficulty understanding their own and others' emotions and are much more vulnerable to mental health disorders. So attachment styles affect how much we are vulnerable. And finally, personality. We're all very different. Some people are just almost born more resilient. We don't know whether it's DNA. We don't know if it's whether we been brought up. But we know, those of us who've got children, you'll look at your children sometimes and you think, well, they're all so different. How come? I'm sure I did the same thing with all of them. But our personality comes into this. Some people are more sensitive than others and will respond in a more sensitive way. We'll feel things more deeply. There is a truth in that. So know yourself and don't compare yourself to others. It's really important. Okay. current drivers of poor mental health. This is, this is up to date. <laughs> okay, This is looking at what right now might cause mental health vulnerabilities. So I'm just going to unpack this very briefly really. Social media. How do we think social media can be detrimental to our mental health? Over to you. Any idea? Everywhere. Everywhere? Yeah okay so social media there's so many good things about social media i first um i first went on to facebook first went on to facebook when my daughter was traveling around the world because i needed to keep in touch and it was brilliant and it's so good for hooking up with old university friends oh she's changing the name okay so she's there so there are good things about social media what is problematic with social media particularly with teenage girls, I have to say, is that there's that expectation that what is on someone's shop front, Instagram, pictures, is really how they live. And we know it's not. You put your best stuff in, stuff in your shop window, don't you, to show to the world. So there's an awful lot of um, comparison and feeling like I, I don't meet up, I'm not like this person, I don't have this, I don't look like that, I'm not thin enough. There's FOMO, fear of missing out, and there is just, and, and awfully, uh, there is also um, online bullying that goes on. And I'm going to jump a bit here, techno fatigue. There's also the sense that we, we're never out of touch. You know kids can be at school then it used to be the case that if you were having a bad day at school at least you could go home and it's all behind you close the door not so now you're on your phone you're in contact it carries on so social media has a, a lot to answer for in terms of as I say mental health disorders particularly among young girls uh, and the increase in eating disorders vicarious trauma what do we mean by that I think as therapists, we're all aware of vicarious trauma because we are required to have supervision, not just to keep our clients safe. We've talked to a, um, uh, um, well, perhaps a more experienced counsellor or supervisor uh, anonymously about some of the issues, but also it's to keep us safe because we are listening day in, day out to difficult material. So we can suffer from vicarious trauma hearing all this stuff vicarious trauma we're also affected by the fact and i'm sure you know this at at the moment listening to the news since the pandemic i've actually stopped listening to the news i'll listen on the radio i will not listen to i won't watch television news because it becomes traumatic it becomes the everything feels unsafe we've had all that with covid now we have all that with the war in ukraine so what i would say preventatively to help our mental health limit social media put some boundaries around it and encourage particularly your young people to do that and put some boundaries on the bad news that you're hearing all the time because it's all it's all relative Um, it's not the whole story but that's all we hear we think it's the whole story and techno fatigue turn your devices off we always used to say to the girls in school you know have a time nine o'clock half past nine ten o'clock in the evening that is it your devices go off it doesn't matter if your friends are still on just just deal with deal with that fear of missing out you know It's for your own good because there's actually research to show that you won't sleep well if you've been on your tablet or on your phone late at night because of the blue light Um, so switch it off fractured communities we've all experienced that since 2020 not being able to see your family not being able to you know go on a walk with more than two people um, it's been desperately difficult. I know myself during the, the second lockdown, which I think was 2020 January, and the weather was dire. We had this big lockdown. i just retired, couldn't see the family. My goodness, I missed them. I felt desperately lonely. In fact, I remember saying to my daughter the one time, I know I can't have the family in the house, but can I just borrow the dog for a night? <laughs> just to have some sort of contact. I know we all felt like that, the statistics that show that. Economic stresses, and we're all suffering from economic stresses. I said genuine, genuine stress, and it's understandable that our mental health might suffer from the economic stresses. Sometimes we might feel there's very little we can do about that, but there are helps out there, things like Christians Against Poverty, if we're struggling, different things. We need to reach out really for help with that and performance anxiety that particularly I think affects our young people at school those who are undergoing exams at present again there's that feeling that I have to perform at a certain level if I don't perform if I don't manage this then I am a complete failure so we go into black and white thinking and I to my mind that is much more a driver of poor mental health performance anxiety than it ever used to be I think that's been racked up hugely that our, our school children the level seems to go up and the expectations seem to go up and up and up and actually thank god I'm not a uh, school any longer on either side, either the teaching side or the, the receiving side Okay, how are we doing? I'm going to draw to a close to give you a breather now in session one. But I want to just end, because that's been quite a grim session. But I want you to hold all these things in your mind, particularly as we go into session three this afternoon. I want you to try and hold in your mind what some of these factors behind mental health vulnerability are. Because as we'll find out, The church often sees it differently doesn't see these things at all so i I want to end with um, a couple of verses from the bible just to remind us that this is not the whole story that even if we've had all these things all the aces all the traumas all the factors seem to be against us that god has the final answer and if we are his then he is the one in charge So I love this this promise. I think it's from Joel in the Old Testament. I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. Even if things have been difficult, even if we have this in the past, God can change the script. He can heal us. So now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations. So I'm going to end that session now and I think hand over to Graham and we can do some coffee.